Welcome to the Trinity Galewood podcast. Here you'll find live messages recorded during our weekly services at Trinity. We are a community that desires to look, live, and love more like Jesus. We're located at 1701 North Narragansett in Chicago and meet every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Trinity Galewood podcast. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who... Uh, not only provides, but who protects as well. And so, God, I pray that in the midst of this, uh, this story that has so much symbolism and so much truth, I pray, God, that we would see you a little more clearly today. May your spirit guide and lead us in this journey. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, uh, we are at week number two of this series called before Calvary, where we are looking at three separate stories uh, that are pointing us to a larger story that is happening and going on. And each of these stories are teaching us more about the plan and purpose of God. So last week, if you were with us, we talked about the story of Abraham and Isaac. And it was in that story that we read about uh, Abraham, a father who was given this test by God to sacrifice his son. And if we think that that story is only about Abraham passing some test, we're eating the crumbs. Remember this analogy? We're not understanding the larger story of what's going on because that story is really about another father, God the Father, who gives his son for us. Jehovah Jireh, God is provider. And so today, we're looking at another story that teaches us something more about the plan and purpose of God. I don't know about you, um, but where I grew up, we did this like really famous science experiment. It was known as the Great Egg Drop. Did anybody have to do this by chance when you were in school? All right. Was I the only one? All right. There's a couple of you. So let me explain. It works like this. Um, you have a raw egg, and, uh, and the egg, on its own, if you know this, right, you've held an egg before, if I were to drop it from this distance, it would break. Uh, the force of gravity and the impact on the ground, it can't withstand with the shell that it has. It needs greater protection. And so our science teacher, I think it was in like middle school when we were doing this project, came up with this idea of, I'm going to take your projects, you can use any material that you want to protect the egg, and I'm going to take it to the top of your school, which was like a four-story building, and I'm going to throw it off the building. And you essentially win if the egg hits the ground and doesn't break. And I'm going to be honest, I love this project. Obviously, I still remember it in my 30s, right? It was this project that was like, man, this is Kind of cool. So I found some like sponges and bubble wrap and all this sorts of stuff and put it all together. And I'm here to say that I successfully passed this challenge. All right. Wasn't expecting an applause for that at all. Okay. And as I think back to that moment, I'm kind of reminded of the fact that the purpose of this project was, was not to like preserve eggs. Because everybody after the project, I like even threw away the egg afterwards. The purpose of this was simply 
that with the right material, the right plan, and the right execution, this egg could drop from a four-story building and still be protected, wouldn't be broken. But the egg on its own couldn't endure the impact of the ground. And today, we're looking at a story, an old story, of a guy named Pharaoh, Moses, and this really strange instruction. Instruction that is intended to be protection for the people of God. If you don't know this story, there's a ton of context that's going on here. And thankful for Michelle, that was a long reading with a lot of detail of what was happening. And so I want to give you a little bit of history of what's going on to this point. This is known as the Passover story. It's a famous story in the people of God. Culturally, what's going on in this moment is that Pharaoh is the king of the world. He is uh, the king of the greatest power in the world at that time known as Egypt. And if you've read the Old Testament before, you maybe know Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Anybody seen the play before, right? Joseph worked for this guy named Pharaoh, was found favor in the place of Egypt. But as time went on, a new Pharaoh was put into place. And as a person of power, when new people get put into spots, old relationships kind of change. And so the relationship with God's people, the Israelites, has changed now. They're not seen as in great favor with this new Pharaoh. And so this Pharaoh decides to put God's people into slavery. They're working hard. And so God's people during this time, they cry out to God. They say, we need rescuing from this place. Another fun story in the Old Testament, God shows up in a burning bush to a guy named Moses. It's kind of strange, but Moses is then given instruction that you're going to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so Moses then goes and he tells Pharaoh to let God's people go. Now, there's something important to understand about God. I think for us, we love the God who is a God of love. We love one who is full of compassion. But we see at the very heart of who God is, is that he is also a God of justice. And then, in fact, these two things work together. When Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, Pharaoh, let God's people go. And Pharaoh's response is this in Exodus 5.2. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Uh, this man of power, Pharaoh, kind of like puffs his chest out a little bit. Who are you to like, come speak on God's behalf to tell me what to do? And so Pharaoh then decides to make the conditions of God's people even worse in Egypt. And so God's people then cry out again to the Lord. And God also flexes out a little bit. What comes is known as the plagues. Anybody heard of them before? Nine of them happen, 
where God turns the Nile River into blood. There's an abundance of frogs in Egypt, gnats, flies, livestock die, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness for three days. And in each of these moments, Moses approaches Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And each time, Pharaoh doesn't. And then it comes to the 10th plague, the biggest one of them all. We just read about it in Exodus chapter 12. We read that God says, because you won't let my people go, that there will be the death of every firstborn child. Now, there's a tunnel ton of cultural baggage that is going on here, and honestly, I don't have the time to explain it all here this morning. If you're really hung up on this point, shoot me an email. I would love to talk to you about this, and my wife is tired of hearing it from me, all right? Because I'd love to discuss these things. But here's what the instruction of God is in this moment. He says this in Exodus chapter 12. He says that for... <clears throat> Go in here, trying to get it. All right, this thing isn't working, Justin. All right, thanks. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute justice. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses of where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. He goes on to say in verse 23 that the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. What what God instructs his people. He's saying, I want you to take an innocent without blemish lamb. I want you to sacrifice it, to kill it, to take the blood and put it around your doorposts. And do this in the middle of the day because at night I'm going to come and execute justice in this land by taking the firstborn child of every house unless there's blood on the doorpost. And what's interesting of this moment is it's almost as if we see God, who is a God of love, yet also a God of justice, fast-forwarding to this day of judgment, saying that I want you to listen to the plan that I have given you. And that this will protect you. And we read that that a great cry comes out of Egypt. It's not a pretty day by any means. But we read that then Moses comes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, get out, take your people and go. See, If you think that this story is some historical lesson about God doing a horrific thing 
and saving his favored people, then I would argue that you're only eating the crumbs of this story. There is something so much greater happening, and this story is pointing to something so much more beautiful and bigger. What it's trying to get us to understand is that on our own effort, we are like an egg falling unprotected that can't endure the impact. Let me explain. In uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 22 here, this should be on the screen, uh, God instructs Moses, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. This is such an interesting little insight here. So after he gives the instruction, he tells uh, Moses that do not tell anybody to leave or go outside when the destroyer is coming. All right, this isn't like, this is a huge warning for you, those crazy people. I think some people are like, hey, a tornado's coming. I'm gonna go capture it on my cell phone, right? Like God's saying, don't do that. Don't be dumb, all right? Stay inside. Stay inside with the protection that I have provided for you. Because remember what's at the heart of this problem. The heart of the problem here is that Pharaoh does not want to listen to God. In fact, if you go to the next one here in Exodus 5, it says that Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And when I hear that complexity going on, I see that as a struggle for us as people. Who is the Lord? that I should actually listen to what he has to say? Who's God that, that he can tell me how I'm supposed to live? Like really that, that he knows what's best? And, and for us as Christians, we would identify that when this complexity happens and we doubt God's provision, that's known as sin. It's known as that we turn away from what God has instructed us to do or be. And it is deeply rooted in who we are. But because of that sin, there comes a debt that comes into our lives. And the reality is, is that nobody can live up to the standard that God has set. No one. No one can uphold all of the things that God has prescribed and described us to do. Because of that, we have a debt to God and to each other like an egg left on its own. Now you might be saying, hold up a second, pastor. This is exactly why I don't like Christianity. Y'all are just like downers, telling me that I'm a terrible person every single week. Okay, all right. You can't live up to the standards that God set, all these sorts of things. Okay, well, let me, let me throw this one at you. If that's you here today, one, I'm really glad you're here. And, and two, let's say this. Uh, imagine that you were, um, when you were born, that you were given a necklace that had a tape recorder on it, Okay? 
And on that tape recorder, it recorded everything that you had said in all of your life. And towards the, as you went on in life, you started to realize that there are standards that I have set for how people should live. Because I like to determine the standards of how others should live. So you might say things like, you know what, I think it's totally acceptable for dudes to wear skinny jeans, all right? That's a standard that can be set. Or Friday nights are for pizza, all right? Standards that can be set. But there's some deeper ones that come in that. Could also be that, you know what, I believe that nobody should ever gossip. Because once you experience the pain of what gossip feels like, you're like, nobody should go through that. Or nobody should hate somebody because of the differences that they can see outwardly. Or, or nobody should lie about anything. And you set all of these standards of what life should be. And then at the end of your life, let's say in some way, shape, or form, there's some time that you could listen to all of the standards that you had imposed on other people to set. And if you had the time to listen to all of those standards that were brought, I would be willing to bet that each and every one of us would also say, I can't even live up to the standards that I expect for other people. There's a debt that exists in the brokenness of this world. And when there is a debt in this world, that has consequences. That brings pain into this world. You might say, well, well can't God just like forgive? Isn't that kind of the reason that I'm here? Can't God just like forget all that stuff? The answer simply is no. He can't just forgive. Hear me clearly on this. God can't just forgive without payment. For forgiveness to be real, there has to be payment. And we experience that in the relationships that we have in our life all the time. For example, when somebody does something wrong, when there's a victim and an oppressor, for the debt to be paid, there's two options that come. The first option can be that if you wrong me, that then you have to deal as the oppressor with the pain. I exclude you from my life, or I say that you have to make up for the wrongs that you have done. That's one way to deal with the pain that exists in this world. Or there's another way to pay for the debt. The other way to pay for the debt is that if I'm the victim, I then choose to say, you know what, I'm going to overlook that pain and debt. I'm going to not allow it to define me. And I, as the victim, will choose to take on the weight of that debt. And what that can look like is that when somebody oppresses you, that you decide to not speak bad about that person, to say, I'm not going to allow what they did to me to ruin all of me. See, the point is simply this. Someone has to experience the pain. If there is brokenness in this world, someone has to pay the debt for the pain and brokenness 
that exists. And I hate to say it this way, but I have to. That night, thousands of years ago, in Egypt, there was either a dead lamb inside of a house, or there was a dead first child. Someone has to pay for justice to be brought. And if we can understand this, we'll begin to understand more about the meal that God is providing. Because it's more than just something that happened thousands of years ago. Look at this. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, it says this. This day shall be for you a memorial day. Uh, The Passover, it's a day that's still celebrated by the Jewish people, uh, known as the Seder meal. And, And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a fast. If you go to the next slide, that word memorial in the original language, Hebrew, is not only just a memorial, but it could be translated as a sign. That this meal is a sign not only pointing you back to what God had done, but it also is talking about pointing you forward to what God is going to do. And this is so incredible because we read that in the life of Jesus, when he shows up, there's this guy named John the Baptist He's the one who prepares the way of the Lord. And when he sees Jesus, he says these words in John chapter 1. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, what John is putting forward for us is he's having this cosmic connection of something that happened thousands of years ago, and he's pointing to this guy, Jesus. And as time went on, Jesus gathered his disciples. He continued to show how he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then a pinnacle moment happens in his ministry. A moment that we celebrate here at church every single week. Jesus gathers his disciples together. By the way, during the Passover, he gathers his disciples and the meal is set and laid out. They're all together. And Jesus, in the place of the presider, which traditionally would have been known, He stands up and he is going to share the story of what God had done thousands of years ago, how he had protected his people in the midst of their brokenness. He freed them from slavery. But Jesus, he stands up and he takes the bread. And instead of telling a story, I can't search the way. Thank you. (laughs) Instead of telling a story, of what happened in the past. He says this, this is my body, 
which is given for you. He then takes the cup, which represented the blood that was shed in that time and day. And he says, instead of telling the story of past, he says, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. See, Jesus, instead of pointing back to something, he says, I'm here right now protecting you. That I am giving you a new Passover meal, a new meal that brings protection. The second thing that was so shocking of the way Jesus did this is that for this meal to happen, there would have been three essential elements. There would have been bread, there would have been wine, and there would have been a lamb. And the people that gathered in that upper room that night, they would have saw that Jesus grabbed the bread, they would have saw that he grabbed the cups of wine, but then they would have been wondering, where's the lamb? And it was in that very moment that his disciples looked and saw and said, he is the sacrifice. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He would do that a couple days later by going to the cross dying a horrific death. He would rise again from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil, saying that all who believe in me will experience life forever. That it would be protection for you and me. When I think back to my little uh, egg experiment and project, I, I continually think about this thought of that as you're building this little project, the question is, could your project overcome the force against it? Could it overcome the force against it? Could it protect the egg that was there? Today, I guess, I wonder that as you hear about God's justice, as you hear about his love, I know that first that comes with a conviction of that I have a debt to pay. And maybe, maybe the force against you is the fact that you can't stop with some of the brokenness that you contribute into this world because of what God has called. Or, or maybe, maybe it's the fact that you like are convicted by, if I had a tape recorder, yeah, that would prove my hypocrisy. Or maybe it's just the sheer fact that you have seen death before. You realize the consequence that sin brings into this world. 
Each and every one of us is in need of protection on our own. We cannot prevail. But the good news is this. This is exactly why Jesus came into the world. That he is our protector. He's the one who took on our shame. That God would provide forgiveness and protection for you and me. He took on the debt that we could not pay. And because of that, I pray that we would find incredible comfort in the protection of our Savior. I pray that we would not settle for the scraps of just some traditional thing that happened thousands of years ago, but that in a couple moments when we get to receive that protection again, we are reminded and we find joy in the comfort that he brings that we would with confidence enter his throne room of grace because he is protecting us and may we, may we live a life that reflects the instruction that he has given us and how we're called to live in this world and our relationship with him yet also in our relationship with each other. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the God who protects. Such huge words. Lord, I, I can't even uh, fully describe the grace that you provide for this world. And I pray, God, that in the midst of our busyness, in the midst of all the things that are going on and happening, in the midst of a world that just questions stories before us, may we find hope and promise in your Passover that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God, may that be our source of joy, our comfort, and our hope as we notice our own debt, as we notice the destruction that exists around us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.